Are you interested in prosperous cities? What do you think about urban pessimism? How can we be more punk music tragic for the better future of cities? Stay tuned for answers from Paul Sator. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? That this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today I will interview Paul Satur, research fellow and lecturer at Monash Water Sensitive Cities and co-founder and CEO of Our Future Cities. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, urban status quo, sustainability, institutional minimalism, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Dr. Paul Satur is the co-founder and CEO of not-for-profit Our Future Cities, abbreviated to OFC. OFC seeks to broaden the dialogue in city shaping, encouraging people of diverse backgrounds, skill sets and experiences to play a role in fast-tracking sustainable transitions through building deep and diverse connections with people and places. Paul is an early career environmental and social science researcher within Monash Sustainable Development Institute's Water Unit. His expertise is regularly sought for guidance on transformative system processes, pathways and practices that best enable an empowerment and capacity building of diverse stakeholder groups in place-based and integrated water planning and management processes. Recently, Paul was recognized as the 2020 Australian Young Water Professional of the Year and, through his work with OFC, received the Stormwater Australian Award for Impact in Education and Policy. Paul currently sits on the International Water Resource Association Task Force for Water and the SDGs, is a member of the National SDG 6 Reference Group and continues to lead a number of multi-stakeholder initiatives that offer a voice to marginalized and traditionally less heard groups in spaces of complex socio-ecological change. In his spare time, Paul is a punk music tragic, keen surfer and volunteers as a community radio broadcaster. And with that, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your appearance on the podcast. I highly appreciate your time. Let's jump right into what does the future of cities mean to you? Yeah. Hi, Fanny. First and foremost, thank you for having me. Great to be a part of this. That is such a good question. It's ironic that I am a part of this not-for-profit called Our Future Cities. And then when I sat down to think about this, I was like, oh my God, where do I even start? I should have, you know, a strong tagline or byline by now or something that I can just whip out on a whim, but I don't. And I think it part of that is increasingly because the further you go down this rabbit hole, the more complex it becomes and the more multifaceted, the more interconnected it becomes and the more sort of highly contextual. And in reflecting on that, I guess what I came away with, and maybe this is a cop out, but what I came away with was that's the future. That's the point. We have these spaces that we refer to as cities that are composed of so many social and technical and cultural layers that all, in a way, are sort of feeding off one another and as this sort of living and breathing entity. And the way that entity looks is really a question of, like, immediate place and time. You know, what you find in one area, you may not find in another. So in my mind, where that 
lands us are cities as sort of multifunctional spaces, deeply interconnected, both in place and time, but also in history, in culture, and in a lot of ways where they're heading. While marching to sort of the beat of that drum are also interpreting that beat in their own unique way. The city is an ecosystem, the city is multifunctional, and the city is composed of lots of little moving contextual parts that shape people's lived experiences, that shapes their needs, that shapes their capacities and their values and ideas in really unique ways. That, in a broad sense, I think, is what the future of cities holds. And the question then becomes, how do we connect into that to make it prosper? Which is probably quite a tricky question. Based on your description, what cities are, they are multifunctional places, deeply connected to space and time with many layers and many facets. Does this what the city means to you? That's absolutely part of it. But I think a really integral or maybe really important thing here is we're also talking about what the future of cities holds. And I'd like to think of cities, you know, whether we refer to them as cities or not, which is a kind of another question, as spaces that more meaningfully recognise that they're multifunctional. Let me provide you an example. Traditionally, in cities, there's been a reliance on sort of hard, rigid infrastructure to prevent flooding and prevent sort of environmental crises like urban flooding events. You know, we rely on sewers and drainage networks and retention basins and things like that to prevent people from getting washed away. And particularly in parts of the Western world, there's been such a reliance on that that the majority of people possess a sort of culture around that where if things go wrong with that infrastructure, there are some pretty devastating consequences. For example, Flash flooding in Melbourne, when we see those really rapid rain events at the end of summer, usually on the news that night, we see some footage of someone who's driven their car under the bridge and it's floating, which is to sort of suggest that often our communities and our people don't necessarily have a social resilience when it comes to something like a flooding event. There's a really strong reliance on infrastructure to provide that role. So when it comes back to this notion of like multifunctionality, Imagine ways of addressing flooding where, for example, you might have a basketball court or the bottom level of a car park that in times of extreme flooding could take on that role of flood infrastructure. It could retain water to prevent flash flooding events from happening. And then at other times of the year when there aren't flooding events, it could serve that purpose of being a car park or being a recreational facility. That could be a really awesome sort of way that a city could be multifunctional or a space within a city could be multifunctional. However, in order for that to happen, people need to look at that basketball court and look at that car park and go, it's also a flood retention zone. And when it rains, I'm not going to drive my car under the bridge and park in the basement, or I'm not going to head down to the basketball court with my family because I know that it actually is playing that role. So I guess what I mean in saying the future is that We've still got a bit of work to do in thinking about the way that the social and cultural dynamics come together with things like built form and space to be able to serve those sorts of purposes. And increasingly more and more, I think we're starting to see examples where buildings can also serve purposes of providing or supporting biodiversity or providing urban greening to prevent sort of that urban heat highland effect. There are some fantastic examples coming through, but I think we're only just scraping the surface on that. And there is a great deal more for us to think about that goes beyond sort of infrastructure and really needs to start to think about and even question 
sort of human behavior, human interaction, and indeed culture, and the way that we can sort of better harness those things to produce these sorts of spaces. You know, and I talked a little bit about sort of the city as an ecosystem. And it's funny, I was having a really fantastic conversation the other day with an Indigenous water scholar who was saying, you know, well, how about instead of thinking about placemaking or this city as a system, we actually just think about it as country? Because that's what we've talked about for thousands of years. It's this deep, interconnected space. This is like an ontology, which is a nerdy way of saying, sort of way of knowing that we've harnessed for thousands of years and it's underpinned the way we do things. And in a lot of westernized and particularly colonialized contexts, that sort of thinking is almost like a brand new cutting edge science. So there's some real opportunity there to think about how we're engaging with things like long-standing traditional knowledge to start to conceive of our cities different from these places with lots of buildings that we go to to make money into something like a living, breathing, functioning ecosystem that has in it infrastructure, has in it social and cultural dynamics that flow and interconnect with one another. And when we start to conceive of it like that, we can start to see those sort of multifunctional opportunities. And then we also get down to kind of the contextual nature of that. We start to potentially see the opportunities in different instances in terms of how they can support people in place in more meaningful ways because they're responding in a more sensitive sort of way. If I am to unpack that very broad statement I began with a little more, that's kind of where my head is in this and, and sort of what gets me excited when I think about the future. It's some of those questions. What I got is that cities are ecosystems, multilayered, multifaceted, many different aspects interconnected. And for their future, we need to be more conscious about these connections and helping that one space doesn't just serve one purpose and our social and cultural approaches need to also allow such multilayered, multifunctional uses of spaces. That's quite good. Yes. I can always yes and anything you're going to say. You had a very interesting snippet in this train of thoughts. You said that cities or not. What do you mean by that? Well, I may be stepping into philosophical waters here, and I don't know if that's wise or not, but I'll go there anyway. Look, I think and it's something that we do a little bit of with our future cities is sort of talk about this idea of what cities means to us. And it's so varied. It's so criminalized and influenced on your background and lived experience to the point where you can sometimes argue, well, is it even helpful to use this term to actually talk about who we are and what we do or what we want to aspire to? I guess the point is that traditionally when we think about cities, we think of these very large hubs, often with lots of buildings and lots of people. Centralized locations often is also something that this notion of the city conjures. You can argue this, obviously, but there's often these sorts of themes that run through it. On the flip side to this, I think when increasingly in spaces of sort of sustainable development and sustainable urbanism, we're recognizing that, you know, these centralized hubs aren't necessarily the most functional way to go, particularly when it comes to challenges of urban density, population growth, climate crisis. You need to be thinking in a much more distributive way and starting to think about, for example, how we make things like the 20-minute neighbourhood, this concept where you live and work and recreate locally within a 20-minute radius of your home and the public health, the sort of environmental and climate benefits that stem from that way of thinking about cities. 
bring multiple benefits to people and environments, culture. They create a number of cultural hubs and so on. So is it useful to be using these words as cities? If people are still thinking of cities as these big places where businessmen hang out, is it a useful concept? Well, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's useful for us to conceive of the city in another way or to think of language that is more inclusive and that is more accustomed to the sort of aspiration that science and sort of leading thinkers in sustainable development, for example, are beginning to start to speak about and advocate for. Or maybe it's useful to use city, which like we've done at our future cities, but to say, hey, let's broaden the dialogue around this and think about it differently because there's a huge amount of potential here. As I said, there is kind of big multifunctional melting pots that are interconnected with lots of different sort of diversity and nuance to them. Maybe it is a useful way for us to harness some of that and start to open the can of worms. I don't have an answer, but I'm always, I think, open to think about it differently because I think it presents possibility. Do you have a description what sustainable urbanism means to you? Ooh, my generic response would be something, something, something. United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I don't know if that's going to be very helpful here. Sustainable urbanism. Well, I guess when we conceive of this notion of sustainability, you can go back to some of those fundamental sort of triple bottom line principles around sort of environmental, social, economic viability. But I think absolutely things like the Sustainable Development Goals have really taken that sort of notion of thinking about sustainability and really sort of broadened it and enriched it with this kind of system of 17 goals that capture environmental and social and cultural and economic viability in a much more interconnected and integrated way and do so in themselves in a complex kind of way. And I think the other part to this is urbanism too, where what is urbanism that in itself is something that you can bat around and come up with multiple different answers on, but it also really kind of equates in some ways to sort of places that people are. So what we're talking about is this complex system or systems way of thinking about sort of social, environmental, cultural and economic viability, how it comes together in this interconnected way in place where people are bringing together those two trains of thought. It's hopefully sort of thinking in a very place-based people, environmental, socio-ecological way and thinking about those challenges of economics, social viability, social well-being, cultural well-being, and of course, environmental and biodiversity, well-being and prosperity. The original three pillars of sustainability, economic, environmental, and social, doesn't really contain cultural sustainability. Mm. Do you think the three pillars are missing this element? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that those pillars, depending on who you speak to, will be interpreted in ways that are premised on those people's experiences and values and expectations. And the way that they are interpreted is really important to what the outcome is. And I think that's the role that culture plays. And that is why it's a critical sort of enabling element to this interconnected puzzle that is sustainability. And it isn't something, in my view, that is necessarily just encapsulated in the social component because social can be about a number of things in itself. We risk overlooking that really integral role of culture Mm. if we simply try and tuck it into something else. I think it's funny. The reason I say that perhaps is through some of my own experience and maybe some of my own culture when it comes to this in terms of my way of understanding it. But I had this really cool job when I was doing my PhD where 
I worked for a local water authority as their water ambassador, which pretty much meant I put on a massive platypus costume and sort of walked, went to all the community events and walked around and high-fived all the kids. I also got to like get up on stage with the state government minister for water and the managing director of Melbourne Water, Melbourne's largest utility and do some of that stuff as well. I think I even, I was on stage with like Ross Wilson from Daddy Cool. I had this wild exorbitant lifestyle as Vinnie the platypus. And what that experience really taught me, being in that platypus costume and unable to talk and just simply listening, is that you can go to the same event in different locations and you experience people who are there for different reasons, who interpret the environment, who interpret a water company, who interpret livability in really unique, different ways. And that influences the sorts of values they have politically and environmentally and socially and obviously economically, how they're going to invest their money and what they want to spend it in, what they value. So that's a small example of a sort of culture, that notion of culture in terms of the history and people's values and expectations kind of really just immediately shapes a really small, minute element of this broader puzzle that is sustainability. And I think when you scale that out, it becomes even of greater significance. So Short answer, yes, I think culture is important. <laughs> you also talked about how we need to create environments in cities which are multi-layered, connected, mm. interconnected and everything, which will prosper. Is prosperous city the future you want to create? And what does prosperous mean to you? Mm. Good question. How do I define prosper or prosperity? What does it mean to prosper? Look, I think the notion perhaps of prospering is sort of linked to this idea of we talk about, I think, in academic circles a little bit, this idea of optimizing systems, the optimization of something. And the question there, like, what are we optimizing for or for who or with? And, you know, I think that's where this notion of prosperity can lend a bit of a helping hand. We are creating or seeking through things like multifaceted or multifunctional spaces. We're seeking to optimize the system so that people and environment and places can prosper, can benefit and can flourish and can be enriched and fulfilling. So how does that look? Well, I think a really integral part to that is comes back to this question of well, prosperity of what, for who and why. I think we have seen numerous examples, particularly over the past 100 years, where that prosperity is for often wealthy, well-educated, white males. The urban form even is designed in ways that supports, there's arguments in literature and things, it supports the businessman getting for work. It doesn't necessarily help someone on maternity leave with a pram who's trying to cross the street. So when it comes to prospering, for me, I think what's wrapped up in there is this notion of inclusion and diversity and empowerment of everyone, and particularly of those who connect to a particular given place in question, be it a city, be it a local, more localised precinct or environment, be it country, what does it mean for those spaces and the people within them to prosper? And it really comes down to thinking first and foremost about that who, what and why. And then finally, in addition to that, who's making the decision around what prosperity is? So there's a power, a question of power in there. For me, if our cities are to prosper, the first action is to be connecting into those that are in them and understanding their needs and interests and the sorts of capacities they have and how those sorts of things can be supported and met, being in a social sense, a cultural sense, a 
built infrastructural, environmental, ecological sense. That's sort of what's tied up in, I guess, that idea of prosper or prosperity for me. So it's not just the prosperity of people, it's also prosperity of the space, the environment, the species, the non-human species as well. Yeah, and the non-human entities like water and land. I think those are important elements that we can't do without. What is the biggest obstacle to creating such a prosperous city, in your opinion? You were talking about how cities are ecosystems and how the indigenous idea could be very well applied to the city as a country. What is the biggest obstacle towards this approach? I think there's a few that are probably interconnected. And you could argue, I say a few because I'd be reluctant to try and pick one of those two or three. I think a big challenge at the moment, and we do it in a number of ways, but it's in defending the status quo, whether we mean to or not. Change is scary for people and for places. I think about For example, if we come back to the notion of country, we had a really good conversation the other week at Monash Sustainable Development Institute looking at the recent Water is Life report, which was an Indigenous voice on the aspirations of sort of water throughout the state of Victoria, commissioned by the state government. And there's some really fantastic work done by the people that worked on that report to bring to light the Indigenous voice of the aspirations of water in caring for culture and country and people. When you hear the statements that have been collected from different traditional owners throughout the state of Victoria, there's a really powerful picture that's being painted around all water being cultural water, about the rights of Indigenous people to have, say, an advocacy over that. The rejection of sort of cultural water as as environmental water or the rejection of all sort of water licensing and allocations. There's some stuff in there that I think speaks to a really powerful potential for the way we can get back to some of those more ecosystems ways of thinking of cities and spaces from a water-based perspective. Yet, when you look at the first eight to 12 to 13 to 16 pages, Before you even get to those Indigenous voices, there's a whole lot of stuff in there that basically says we are not making any changes to water licensing in the state of Victoria. And that is out of that sphere or inertia that rests in kind of the political sensitivity of the impacts of change. You know, so while the intent of that report is really powerful and produces something really powerful, there's also a state government who are essentially saying, don't expect any change anytime soon. We're going to defend the status quo. And that's one example. You could argue, I'm sure there's people that might listen to this and go, well, that's not entirely right. And really just is one that came to mind out of a conversation that was had the other week that was really eye-opening to me. But I think there are some more subtle ways that this status quo is defended. And it often can be, for example, culture in large city-shaping institutions and organisations, be it engineering firms, be it sort of state or public authorities, of a valued way of doing things that has been valued. And there are young people that come out of university with essentially what is the forefront of knowledge and thinking in their field. To some extent, they've learnt from sort of the academic sphere, which is essentially trying to further knowledge and progress understanding. They're bringing this knowledge into organisations. But culturally, they're at the bottom of the pecking order and culturally are probably a little bit anxious and feel embedded in a place where they don't necessarily have the knowledge and the skill sets that the older guard does. So take 
or heed lessons and heed guidance from those more experienced senior professionals. Now, there's obviously understandable benefit to doing that. But at the same time, implicitly, what it can lead to is the same processes being regenerated generationally, you know, and maybe marginally nuanced or improved rather than these young people coming in with so much knowledge and so much potential who inevitably inherit any of the decisions that are made today and have to manage it into the future, being given more of an active voice and playing more of an active role to push innovation and to think differently. You know, that's another example, I guess, that sort of sits under the philosophy of our future cities a little bit, where we're starting to think about, well, how do we really harness this potential of young, aspiring placemakers and change makers and leaders and sustainability advocates who have their finger on the pulse? and will be responsible for whatever decisions are made into the future. How do we make sure that they're actively leading the way and having an opportunity to have input in meaningful ways rather than waiting 30 years until they're, you know, a middle or senior manager? Yeah, that's defending the status quo. And I think the cousin to that sort of defending of the status quo, or maybe the other way we are defending the status quo, is we still see so much siloed decision-making happening. You know, we see the water people managing water We see the water engineers off doing the pipes and the pumps and looking after the big centralised infrastructure. We see the climate people doing their thing. There might be transport people over the road doing their thing, all trying to address sustainability or greenhouse gas reduction. And in the process, kind of not necessarily optimising the sorts of outcomes that we achieve when we start to actually more meaningfully bring these areas of management and areas of investment together to meaningfully think about what could be achieved. And that's where this question of or this opportunity for sort of multifunctional places and spaces can really start to prosper. Using that word a lot now that we've mentioned it, aren't I? So, you know, that for me, I think is another challenge. It's really institutionally, we're set up to be single issue focused to solve problems on our own. The ways that we're often doing those are through very kind of reconstituted processes that defend the status quo. So there's a need to be disrupting not only what's happening within those institutions, but also disrupting the processes by which they apply themselves to be a bit more multifaceted, to be a bit more integrative, to be able to be resourced appropriately that enable people to reach out to their neighbours or reach out to their communities or reach out to different stakeholders to broaden and enrich that perspective in decision making. So the two big challenges for you, uh, the defending the status quo, which is because of fear of change, which then creates a constant feedback loop. And the other is siloed decision-making because we miss the holistic solutions. Yeah. Decision-making and problem-solving that limits our capacity to look at things holistically and engage in more integrated and multifunctional ways. Then what are the opportunities? Well, I think the opportunities really comes back in some ways to the notion of a city that we sort of talked about at the beginning, and that is that it is a melting pot. There is so much in that space that constitutes city, so much potential to be harnessed and untapped and optimised. The question becomes, well, how do we do it? And that is, that's challenging, but it's exciting. And that, I think, comes back to, in my view, hopefully, some of the things that I would like to see in the future of cities where we start to think about it in a systemic way and we do so through sort of contextual understanding, through connecting in with place and those that are a part of that or value it and love it to more meaningfully have a a richer understanding of what that can look like. And not only place but 
expertise and knowledge and ways of thinking about that place, be it through an Indigenous knowledge-based lens, be it through a various array of different disciplines, an interdisciplinary lens, so to speak, to really start to explore those opportunities and to kind of experiment and have fun with it too. What happens if we brought together a performance artist, a designer, a robotics engineer, a chemist, an architect, an Indigenous elder, and a local town planner to solve a problem, to solve a transport problem? You know, I imagine the sorts of outcomes that might come from that could be something far different to what happens if we brought together a transport planner and a transport architect and a transport economist. And that's where I think actually the opportunity lies. It's harnessing that melting pot and doing it in a logical way. I'm not saying that we just run out and knock on people's doors and be like, what are we doing? And they say, we're going to just get a hundred puppies and put them in the street. Okay. Sounds great, but probably isn't going to help carbon reduction or something. Maybe it will, who knows? But harnessing in, tapping into that sort of really rich place-based potential in a very systematized way, recognizing that tapping in in one location will benefit tap the sort of ways that we connect and engage in others. But recognizing the outcomes might not necessarily be the same. That, in my mind, is a very different way of decision-making and planning and I guess you could call it governance than what we traditionally see, which is far more top-down, which is often a key group of decision-makers sort of removed from a context, stipulating terms and outcomes that flow down onto the ground that aren't necessarily always sensitive to the sorts of community or environmental, cultural, you know, needs and experiences of those places. Yeah, that is, I think, what I have noticed to be the gradual shift in the tide. We are starting to see, I think, a lot of large entities and organisations that have traditionally had those very siloed approaches, have had very top-down approaches to start thinking about, well, what does it mean to be more place-based? How do we reorient sort of our business model, the way we make money, to support us to do that in a more meaningful way? Yeah, those are the strengths. Those are the opportunities for me. I think it's in those sorts of spaces. How do we get on board with that and really help foster it? Now, you also talked about the younger generation and their untapped knowledge and enthusiasm and power and their necessary role to work with our decisions now in the future. How would you include them more into the discussion? What is the obstacle with that? And how would you solve that obstacle? How can Mm -hmm. we include more the younger generation? Well, we need to, I think work carefully and strategically to create spaces and opportunities that enable them to step into. And that can be within organisations. It can be through kind of a broader cultural change, or it can be outside of those organisations in recognising that sometimes there's benefit in actually creating spaces outside of existing big decision-making bodies that some of those decision-makers can step into without taking on the risk. Coming back to this idea of defending the status quo, can be hard to shift a process, you know, knowing the kind of sorts of financial risk or social or reputational risk that you can take on. So creating, and this is something that our future cities, I think, strives to do, creating spaces that allow young people to step in with leading thinkers and leading practitioners to focus on a sustainability challenge of a particular area and say, well, what if, what if we did it this way? And to go down that rabbit hole and explore the opportunities and inform it with good science and good practice to have people who work in the real world come along and say, yeah, that's good, but what about this challenge or what about that? You know, those can create really powerful ways of that young aspiration, that young knowledge having input into 
existing processes, be it a master planning process, be it a future planning initiative, being it a number of things. So that I think is one part to the puzzle. The other part, I think to put it back on a group like young people is offering opportunities for their personal development. So our future city started with a friend and I having gone through undergraduate degrees. And I think he learned to be an engineer and I think a lawyer, and I learned to be an environmental manager or something like that, and came out into the real world and all of a sudden realized that we had to be able to work alongside architects and planners and engineers and economists and you name it, a number of other people who all had their own like professional lingo and their own way of seeing and understanding problems that were so foreign to us. And that this wasn't something that we as young people were experiencing. It was something that everyone experiences. And there's so much investment just put in to bringing people into a room to try and make sense of where everyone is coming from. So we thought, well, why don't we start creating these spaces early for younger people to step into and build that expertise? So when it comes to this idea of stepping outside of your silo, not only is it an expectation stepping out of your silo, but you know how to do it. You know the understand the importance of it. You know, you can critically question an organization when you go in and they're making decisions and you're going, well, what about the traditional owners? What about the local community? What about the environmental outcomes or whatever other outcomes we're not considering? And you can start to see and understand that need. And through that also recognize the value of innovation. So there's that skill building component to it as well. It's not just about disrupting the structures and the processes that we're traditionally used to. It's also about enabling opportunities for people that are interested in this space. And I often don't like saying young people all the time because it's it's the sort of thing that should be open to everyone, right? It doesn't really matter your age or where you are in your personal or professional development. If you're up for it, then I guess you fit the young people bracket in my view. You're young at heart and you're keen, which is awesome. But let's enable that. Let's build people's Indigenous knowledge awareness through some reflection on their own background you know, in their own privilege and things like that, and then start to think about, well, what does it mean to meaningfully engage people of different cultural background and a different understanding? Those are the sorts of opportunities for skill building that I think are integral to getting us to where we want to be in this sort of this space. Professor Jenny Pei in episode 93 and Matt Farrell in episode 120 talked about the pessimism of the younger generation because we they, doesn't really matter, <laughs> don't see a future based on the current trajectories and why to work on it, why to make an effort. How would you tackle that pessimism? I mean, that is absolutely a challenge. And I would argue that the pessimism extends beyond young people. There's a lot of disengaged, disenfranchised people in the context of sort of sustainability challenges, in the context of decision-making. And I think it is like symptomatic of a culture of top-down decision-making, of a sort of way of working that has premised decision-making removed from context that doesn't necessarily allow people to connect into it and to understand it and to value it. We're building, we're designing neighborhoods and streets and places. We're designing waterways, for God's sakes, that aren't necessarily sensitive to kind of the culture of those places that inherently has existed there or the people that have lived there and have valued it. So how can people step in? How can people look at something like that and go, I meant to care about this now? It starts with, I think these sort of decisions need to start with relationships and need to, at times, particularly in the example of, say, Indigenous people need to also acknowledge power and 
undertake a bit of truth telling around that, around what the history of that has been and to move forward together. These are inherent challenges that are also wrapped up in this defending of the status quo. There are things that we are still doing implicitly that often stem from our own privilege and bias that mean that people have less of an opportunity to participate or less of a willingness. And that's a difficult thing to learn. You kind of have to learn what is referred to in sociological terms as kind of reflexive, critical thinking. You really need to acknowledge your own background and your own decision-making. I'll give you an example, and this is a small example. There's some research I undertook as part of a PhD in around 2018 was looking at the experience of sort of the millennium drought in Melbourne and Perth, parts of cities in Australia, on different socioeconomic communities in those cities. So we spoke to people in quite socially disadvantaged communities down through to those in far more socially disadvantaged sort of settings. And, and also looked at kind of what the drought response from a policy and sort of practice perspective was. Interestingly, there was very much a top-down approach here in Melbourne. The state government introduced a number of policies that were designed to really bring the realities of the drought to the forefront of people's experience. You know, we saw this kind of great browning, all of our urban parks dried up. There were heightened water restrictions on people being able to use water outdoors. There were heightened water prices, which really had an impact on people's livability. And the ways of offsetting those impacts were things like incentive programs for things like rainwater tanks. So when I spoke to, for example, people in much more socially advantaged settings, they were like, oh, yeah, you know, it was tough, but we just got five rainwater tanks in the backyard and the recycled water unit on the side of the house, which would collect our dishwasher and bathroom water, and we'd be able to recycle that up to use it on the garden and in the pool and things. So, you know, we didn't suffer too bad. We just cashed in on that incentive. Where at the other end of the social gradient in more disadvantaged communities, there were people saying like, I heard about a incentive, but I just still couldn't afford it. Or we're renting and it's not up to us to be able to install a rainwater tank. We have no capacity to engage in that. And there were others who simply didn't really understand how you would even go about getting a tank in the first place or how to maintain it if it broke down, which was really interesting. And what it really reiterated there's a really fantastic Sydney-based scholar called Zoe Safoulis who talks about this idea of institutional mini-meism. And it's where the institutions, the water organisation or the state government at the time that's responsible for those decision-making has a unconscious bias that everyone they are creating these incentive programs for have the same literacy and understanding of how a rainwater tank works, how you install it, how you engage in it. Often, well, an unconscious bias that they're pretty much the same person. They have the same disposable income to be able to go out and access it. If they're a homeowner, they can go out and do this. And what we see from that sort of one-size-fits-all kind of top-down approach is that it impacts people differently. And often it impacts the more disadvantaged parts of our cities or our communities much more than it does our more advantaged groups. That is a small example of that lack of reflexive thinking that we sort of see in decision-making still quite often. We go out and do some engagement. What do you think? Tick box, great, walk away. Rather than sort of building this ongoing relationship that helps people engage in the problem, work collectively with different stakeholders to reach a solution and to co-own that solution and value it and want to be a part of it. And that's the shift culturally I think we need to see to start addressing this pessimism sort of issue. Can you talk about whether you asked what would have helped the disadvantaged groups? 
There's a number of answers, but I think the critical missing ingredient was being engaged in the first place and being listened, being heard. It's hard to sort of say there was no silver bullet in terms of what the solution was, but I think where the problem arose from was that there wasn't necessarily the sort of engagement needed to develop a solution that was more contextually suitable. Whether it was an alternative water-saving device that was far more simple to operate and maintain, didn't affect people's income so significantly, whether there were support services provided by water utilities or a social support network that could send out some plumbers to help ensure its maintenance. There's a number of different ways it could have been addressed, but what it really came down to was it's like, here's your way to overcome extreme urban heat island effect during a drought when there's multiple 40-degree days. If you can't afford it, you suffer, which is kind of what the outcome was, unfortunately. Could a government create such a multi-layered approach? Have you seen good examples for that? I'm asking this because usually it's understandable why the governments arrive to a top-down, very simple, a mini-me idea. I can yeah. understand why they arrive to that. Can we require them to do a better job because we have seen it work at other places? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a really good question. And it's easy to go off and say, oh, you need to engage your community and be more contextually sensitive, state government. But at the end of the day, there's only so many taxpayer dollars. There's only so many resources and there needs to be decisions made that hopefully benefit as many people as they can which means there's not necessarily a clear answer. But I think some of the ways that we've seen organisations make progress towards developing more contextually sensitive approaches to get your different sort of stakeholders and different communities in under the tent early. Don't be trying to respond to a crisis by sprinkling a little bit of money in the community engagement space, but start to actually build those relationships and those networks. And I know in public health spaces, there's been discussions around these ideas of sort of proportionate universalism. They sort of talk about where the resources and where the decision-making processes should lie. For example, if there's a state-based government or a federal government with a particular pool of money that is seeking to implement on-ground outcomes, then They should be proportionally seeking to engage stakeholders at certain levels who can then go on and work at a more localized context. I think we've seen really fantastic examples in some well-resourced local governments, arguably, like the city of Melbourne, who are building sort of citizen juries and things like that, sort of local settings to support decision-making and advocacy processes, or entities partnering with not-for-profits like Farley Moffat's Place Jam, I think it was, who do some really fantastic sort of community-led processes to address sort of livability outcomes. Those are a few examples of ways that we are seeing that the practice being extended. And no doubt there are others that you can point to as well. But I think we've still got a lot of learning that we can do in this space for sure. I don't want to defend the governments because they <laughs> could do so much more. Yeah, It's just good to know that there are examples which we can point to that, yes, governments can do more. Mm. I understand that this is a resource issue as well. But as you mentioned, in this case, the industry can also jump in and help out with the knowledge, data, practice, and then give it to the governments that this is the knowledge, the contextualized knowledge. You could make decisions based on that. Yeah, knowledge, data, practice, and also relationships which I think is a critical one when we're talking about vulnerable groups. 
vulnerable disadvantaged groups, like everyone, I think, in the last year or so particularly, have a very full social suitcase in terms of the things that they're trying to take on. So being approached about a water saving initiative is often one of the last things that's going to be on their priority list. So it's not necessarily easy or effective for everyone all of a sudden to just go out and start creating their citizen juries or building their network, building their ongoing relationship and expecting that they're going to get mass attendance for every single issue when it comes to the urban sustainability. So the question is, how do we do it well and effectively? And the answer around that somewhat is about integration together, these different sort of urban challenges of transport and infrastructure and water and health and livability and recreation and start to have some conversations around what the opportunities are to sort of explore multifunctional solutions and build some engagement in ways that are effective rather than just like constantly repetitious and reach out to groups that are already doing that engagement well, because there's a lot of them out there already, I think. Paul, you have been very generous with your time and your answers. I could ask you for hours, what does space mean to you? Or what do you think about (laughs) centralized and decentralized cities? But as a before last question, what is your role in establishing the future of cities? I guess I have always been a punk music tragic from a young age. When I was like in primary school, I think like Punkarama Volume 2 fell in my hot little hands. It's like this compilation of like American skater punk from the 90s. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And that set me on this trajectory of just blasting noisy music for like years of my life until my parents politely asked me to leave. You know, and it hasn't stopped there. I've always been part of music of that kind. And one of the things, particularly going to a lot of like punk hardcore gigs early, what really drew me into that space is you would go to these shows that are happening in basements, that are happening in backyards, that are happening anywhere you can kind of do it. And it was never or rarely was it ever like some sort of organization that's putting this on or some sort of company that everyone goes to. It was like the community that liked that music doing it themselves. And there was usually very rarely a stage that the band would play on, or if it was, it might be like a little rise, you know, just so everyone can see. But the kind of notion around that, or at least what it cultivated, was what it kind of felt like was it wasn't about going along and seeing the band. Whether you were in the band, whether you were the audience, you were part of that show. The audience was the band equally as much, and there was grabbing the microphones and singing along, and there was stuff going everywhere. It eroded the power dynamic of people passively watching the band and instead create an environment where everyone is a part of it and everyone gets to benefit from it as a result. And I think that mentality is really powerful. The fact that we can create opportunities that everyone gets to be a part of, that everyone gets to benefit, and we do it ourselves, which is to say that we do it in ways that are unique to our own capabilities, skill sets, interests, and context is really important and beneficial, is part of that ingredient that makes it special. So what my role is maybe is to bring a little punk hardcore to the future of our cities. Not that there's not some of that already, but in terms of that mentality, challenge power dynamics, challenge the status quo, encourage unique and diverse voices and perspectives to do it themselves and to be a part of that 
to feel empowered and excited by that. Whether you're a young person, whether you're a, a refugee, whether you're an indigenous person, whether you are just like me, the stock standard skinny white guy that listens to loud music, whatever you are, you've got something to offer and it's valuable and it's important. So get out there and have a go at it and feel excited about it. That's the sort of role I want to play and what I hope I can support with others that are keen on it. Our Future Cities, Australian-based not-for-profit. There's that mentality that, that does sit in there, that and so much more. You know, we are a, um, a small not-for-profit comprised of young people that are excited about the opportunities that cities have presented. You know, there's a vision there to accelerate the transition to a sustainable future by creating deep and diverse connections with people and places. And the other day, we all got together to do a bit of planning for the year and the next couple of years. And we said, well, what about that vision resonates with you? And nine out of 10 said connections with people and places. That's what it's about. And then there's this opportunity to sort of break the status quo where it needs to be broken to accelerate, to optimize prosperity to do that through, we've got a mission as well, build capacity through collaboration and innovation and act as a catalyst for sustainable urban practices. So that mission is around sort of how do we empower people with, with skills? How do we empower people with voice? How do we promote and support and celebrate innovation and have fun doing it? That's purely what this group is about. And there are such an inspiring bunch of, of volunteers and it's open to anyone and everyone that is out there listening to that and going, that sounds pretty cool. Come along. Like that's really how it all starts. We don't necessarily know what we're going to do in the next few years, but it sits under that way of thinking. And that's sort of who we're keen to connect with, others that see and value that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? You can find Our Future Cities by going to ourfuturecities.org. You can track us down on LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook if you're interested in connecting. Or you can Google me. I think, and you'll come across me and get in touch with me and I can point you in the right direction too. All the links will be in the show notes. So you can also go there awesome. and check those out. There Thank you, you so much, Paul. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. It was really interesting to hear from Paul about cities as melting pots, resulting in outcomes being different at different locations. Not to mention his questioning of the term city Bridget Angler in episode 21 did something similar. You can find out more about Paul online, all the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Paul's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?